want to acknowledge that Carleton University and the other locations where we make this podcast are on traditional, unceded Algonquin territory. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Department Podcast. I'm Billy Flynn and along with my co-host Phil Primo, uh, we are now on our fifth episode of the special Storytime uh, editions that we've been hosting for the last uh, few weeks. We hope you've enjoyed listening to them. We've very much enjoyed uh, reading them. Uh, thank you to everyone for sending in your requests and recommendations. I've heard that uh, Lily and Dan really liked the last episode a lot, so you or your kids have any stories, short books, poems, anything like that, that you'd like to hear read aloud by one of us, uh, then let us know and we'd be happy to uh, give it a shot. You can send us an email at departmentpodcast.ca. You can connect with us on Twitter at departmentpod, or you can just email us through our personal email accounts as well. For today's episode, I am going to read chapter two of Emily Prickleback's Clever Idea. Uh, This uh, book was requested by Lily, uh, and I read chapter one in the last episode. And I wonder, Lily, if uh, one of the reasons why you like this particular book is because one of the main characters uh, is also called Lily, uh, along with Jess and Goldie. Uh, If you remember last time, uh, they were just uh, about to enter the uh, magic uh, forest, the friendship forest. So... Let's see uh, how things are going to continue. Chapter 2. The Water Wheel A boat race, said Lily. I can't wait. Goldie bent down to pick up a basket that was tucked in the roots of the friendship tree. I've got another surprise for you, she said with a smile. She opened the lid and the girls peeked inside. Mmm, blossom buns and watercress sandwiches, said Lily. Cherry bread, said Jess, and bottles of strawberry frizz. Mmm. Everyone who goes to the Rushy River Race takes picnics to share with their friends, Goldie said, shutting the lid. Lily and Jess grinned at each other. Going to Friendship Forest was always exciting, but coming for a race and a picnic sounded even better. The race is at Willow Tree River, Goldie continued as they walked. Do you remember our adventure there? Yes, that was where we rescued little Ellie Featherbill, said Lily, smiling at the thought of the adorable duckling. Maybe they'd see her again today. As they wandered through Toadstool Glade, Molly Twinkletail, the mouse, waved to them from the Toadstool Cafe. Cooey, she called from the window. The little mouse was sitting inside eating toffee toast with her mole friend, Lola Velvet Nose. Hello, Molly, said Jess and Lily. Lola's little pink nose went waffle waffle as she sniffed to discover who Molly was talking to. I smell honey, she said, peering through her round purple framed glasses. It's Jess. Lily laughed. Lola always says you smell a honey, Jess, she says. Lola's nose went waffle waffle again. That must be you, Lily, she said. You smell of strawberries. Thank you, Lola, laughed Lily. Are you coming to the Rushy River Race? As soon as we're finished, our toffee toast, said Molly. I'm so excited. Jess, Lily and Goldie set off again, passing other animals on their way to the river. 
some carried picnic baskets, some had rugs or sunshades, and everyone was chattering happily. What a beautiful day, said Lily. The shining house makes sure it's always sunny and warm here, remembered Jess happily. Thanks to you two, added Goldie. The shining house was cared for by the Flufftail Squirrel family, who kept its magic working so that warm, bright sunlight always shone through beneath the trees. But recently, Chili, Griselda's ice dragon, had put a spell on the poor squirrels and the magic had stopped until Jess and Lily had found a way to get the blue dragon to reverse his spell. Goldie pointed through a gap in the trees. There's Willow Tree River! So many were animals crowded at the riverside that the girls could only just see the water, twinkling like a jewel in the sunshine. Look, Goldie pointed her paw. The teams were getting ready by the starting line. The Featherbill Duck family chatted beside their pretty blue and yellow barge. The Greenhop Frog family had brought their widest lily pad, which was the size of Jess's kitchen table at home. And the Flippershell Turtles were lining up too, each wearing a cap of a different colour of the rainbow. Even their rowboat was rainbow coloured too. Jess waved to the Paddlefoot Beaver family, who were sitting one behind the other in their orange canoe. On the banks all around, animals were laying out their picnics and sat at a judge's table. There were three elegant Swan Sisters. Sylvia Whitewing, the eldest, nodded gracefully to the girls when they waved. Then Goldie turned to the girls. There's one more thing to do before the race can begin. Come on! Jess and Lily followed her downstream along the riverbank to a beautifully polished water wheel. It turned slowly and steadily as its blades paddled through the water, making a lovely splish, splish sound. In front of the water wheel, a family of hedgehogs were rolling around on the leaves and flowers that littered the riverbank. They spiked the leaves with their prickles, then scurried to shake them off into a pile, well away from the water wheel. One of the smaller hedgehogs scurried over towards the girls. It's Harry Prickleback, said Lily. Hello, Jess. Hello, Lily, said Harry, as two more adorable little hedgehogs looked curiously at the girls. This is my brother Herbie, and this is my little sister Emily. Emily was wearing a pretty sparkling tiara on her head. Lots of leaves and candy floss scented petals were caught in her prickles. Excuse me, she said, touching Jess's knee. I like your curly yellow hair. Thanks, said Jess. I like your tiara. Emily won that in a competition, Harry explained proudly. She had to solve lots of really difficult puzzles. Lily smiled at Emily. You must be very clever, she said. Oh yes, said Mr. Prickleback proudly. Our little Emily is really smart. Emily's nose blushed pink. Your tiara looks so pretty with the petals on your prickles, said Lily. We should decorate our hair like that. Emily giggled. It's not decoration, she explained. It's work. We collect leaves and petals on our prickles so they don't clog up the water wheel. Mrs. Prickleback bustled over to help get the leaves off Emily's back. The Willow Tree River flows when we turn the water wheel, she explained. We have to make sure it never stops or the river will disappear. Only the Pricklebacks know how to turn the wheel, Goldie said. That's why I've come to ask them a favour. Mr. Prickleback grinned. Anything for you, Goldie, he said. Will you make the river flow a little more quickly, please, she asked. We want to give the boats a flying start. The young hedgehog squealed in the light. Of course, said their dad. Everyone, take your place. Lily and Jess grinned at each other happily. They couldn't wait to see the Pricklebacks in action. Our next story is called Any Way the Wind Blows by Sean and McGuire. New York City spreads out beneath us, gray steel and gleaming glass from our aerial perspective, virtually stripped of the color and chaos that almost always fills its streets and everything about it is familiar, and nothing about it is familiar. And I am so very far away from home. I'm tired of this, 
They warned me when I started that one day I'd be tired of this. And I thought they were ranting and raving the way hidebound old fools always rant and rave when there's a scientific advancement at hand. It's as much a part of the process as the grandiose declarations of showing them, showing them all, and the ceremonial passing of the adventurer's compass. Turns out, they were right. There are only so many wonders you can see before you start thinking longingly of your own bed, in your own room, in your own home, of the pillows battered into the shape of your head, the mattress that knows every curve of your body, the heater that rattles in that way that turned into white noise years ago, unremarkable, soothing, memorable only in its absence. I don't think I've had a decent night's sleep in five years, and I still have two more to go, and I hate this. Helm report. My current helmsman is a green-skinned nymph from a parallel where the gods of the Greeks never faded from power. Instead, they continued doing what they did best, fighting and feasting, until 90% of the population could trace their lineage directly back to one god, demigod, or mythical figure or another. Not that they called them myths, since, you know, when you're one of the 11 million families whose solstice dinner Zeus is required to drop in on, the situation isn't very mythical anymore. She looks up, nods once, and goes back to studying her instruments. Mammalian, she said finally. There are representatives of other populations, but all are what we expect from the human-dominated Manhattans. The avian clusters match my pigeon data, and the insects match up with cockroaches, mostly. There are a few outliers. Are the mammals moving slowly and with confidence, or are they cowering in the subway tunnels? We once found a parallel where the pigeons had somehow turned carnivorous and bloodthirsty. A flock could pick the flesh off a human's bones in under a minute. The piranhas of the sky. We lost two interns on that stop. And we didn't even manage to collect any of the flesh ripper pigeons, which is a much bigger pity, really. No one signs on as an intern for a trip like this one unless they have a massive death wish or a family that's desperately in need of the survivor's benefits. It's sad and it's tragic. And it's the reason we have such high death toll every time we cruise the parallels. Everyone needs to get by. Flesh ripping pigeons though, those would have given the rest of us a reason to turn around and head from home, finally in possession of something bigger and better than the little trinkets we've been picking up since day one. Still, a hold of trinkets is nothing to sneer at. Stubby isn't the biggest or fastest or shiniest airship in the fleet. But she gets the job done. Mammals are within median human standards. This looks like a boring one, and they're out on the streets in pretty large numbers. They seem to be alive. We're not dealing with a reanimating pathogen. Thank the lightning for that, I say. The rest of the bridge crew offer their own counterpoints, varied by the parallels of origin. The ones who've been with me since the beginning thank the lightning, and the two we picked up in that weird, theologically inverted parallel thank the thunder, while Daphne, my helmsman, thanks her father, Zeus, in a bright, chipper voice that makes me thankful once again that we haven't encountered him anywhere outside the parallel where we picked her up. The last thing I need right now is a randy deity showing up on my bridge, especially since he might not recognize Daphne as his daughter. Captain. I turn. Our navigator is looking over his shoulder at me. Well, one of his heads is. 
The other is still watching the curved window that makes up the front of our airship, crystal clear and apparently fragile. Most people who attack us aim for that window first, not asking themselves how many protections we'd put on a sheet of glass that size. The fact that it's not a solid mass of bugs doesn't seem to be the clue it should. What is it? He smiles uncertainly. I think I see the flatteron. That makes me stand a little straighter. Not every parallel has a flatteron building. Oh, every one we've discovered where the European colonists constructed a settlement in the area we know as Manhattan had had plans for a flatteron. But they don't always get built. And once they're built, they don't always survive. Some of them have burnt. Others were bombed. One of them was infected by an artificial bacterium intended to help destroy landfills by converting them into arable soil, which had converted it into the largest pile of loam I'd ever seen. An intact flatteron is a reason to celebrate. Maybe. How secure does the structure look? Seems stable. That's good. Is there a docking station on the roof? Negative, Captain. Daphne looks up from her instruments. The mammals below us are pointing and stopping as we pass overhead. I don't think the airship caught on in this parallel. Oh, lovely. Primitives. There are flying machines, says one of the other bridge crew. They seem to operate on an internal combustion basis, but they get where they're going. Fast, too. If we had one of those, we'd be home within the quarter. With our surveys half finished, I snap. You can't chart ground properly if you're moving across it too fast for anything to record. Use your head, or we'll get you a new one. I'd like a new head says the navigator. The ones I have don't provide me full range of vision. Three heads, now. Three heads is where it's at. I manage barely not to throw my hands up in the air. I'm going below deck, I say. It's time to prep the incursion team. Aye aye, captain, shouts the helmsman. Everyone laughs. I am so tired of this shit. These are facts about the universe in which we live. First, it's basically a sheet of baklava that hasn't been cut. Layer upon layer of reality, all resting lightly atop one another, all sweet and delicious and ready to be devoured. And trust me when I say there are things out there that are totally into the concept of devouring existence as we know it. One crunchy nut-filled bite at a time. Worlds that aren't watched have a tendency to blink into nothingness and be forgotten filling the belly of some cosmic terror, creating yet another hole in the pastry. When a world gets eaten and a hole opens up, it's easier for the baklava eaters to shove their nasty little hands in and pry more pieces loose. Maybe your world is a tasty snack, good luck sleeping tonight isn't a good way to start a conversation, but I'm with the Cartography Corps, otherwise known as the looters. Diplomacy is for people with much higher pay grade than mine. Because, second, not every world knows they're not alone. And better minds than mine figured out a long, long time ago that it's best to let people figure things out in their own time. If one world opens a window on another, they view themselves as peaceful explorers. If a world has a window opened on it, they view the people on the other side as hostile invaders. Aren't humans fun? I mean, to be fair, that sort of maps up to most recorded history in the majority of the parallels we've charted. But still, it means we have to be careful when we're surveying. But it doesn't mean we can stop. The Cartography Corps is a joint venture by the governments of nine of the most advanced parallels. We have alliances with countless more. They send us resources, crewmen and supplies, and we launch our airships into the vastness of the universe, charting and recording everything we encounter. 
we map the baklava because we can't tell when things are missing unless we know what's supposed to be there. Despite my navigator's fascination with internal combustion engines, they're not suitable for our purposes. They go too fast and our maps wind up with holes in them, empty places where the data ought to go. We travel by airship like civilized people, sailing across the endless sea of parallel worlds, making our lists and checking them twice, telling our archives who's naughty or nice. And of course, there's the looting. We're not pirates, but we're not saints either. And we're almost always a long, long way from home, unless we find something that demands immediate attention from the scholars at the university. We gather trinkets and artifacts as we travel, along with raw materials, tucking them all away in our hold until we can't carry any more and get to turn and head for home. We try never to take anything of specific social or religious significance. On parallels with a decently sized human population, we can sometimes even pay for what we abscond with. Airship contact is inevitable, of course, but it's never yet been a major concern. Some parallels fire on us, and that's fine. If they don't have the ability to move between layers of the baklava, then they don't have anything powerful enough to breach our shields. Other parallels try to worship us as gods, which is a little annoying for everyone except for Daphne, who takes it all in stride. Godhood is her family business after all. Mostly people just give us what we ask for and try to forget us as quickly as possible. Me and Stubby, my airship, Her Majesty's stalwart trumpet of glory, have been running the North American mapping route since I left home, and part of our job is to drop in, verify the location of semi-universal landmarks, and see whether they have any artifacts in need of preservation. Hence, our current course for the Flatteron building, which is, as I mentioned, close enough to universal as to be a little bit unnerving. Why that building? Why that location? No one really knows, but wow, are there a lot of them. The scouts and rangers of the incursion team are, as always, completely at ease when I step into their shared quarters a single large room that takes up most of our lower deck. They have free access to our hold, and most of them have borrowed various artifacts to decorate the space around their beds, hammocks, and sleeping tanks. The effect is not unlike stepping into a junk shop that had an unfortunate encounter with a hand grenade. Heloise is playing some sort of dice-adjacent game with Tim and Tom, using precious gems in place of the dice. Alcestes, from Daphne's world, is face down in a hammock, snoring gently. The rest of the incursion team is nowhere to be seen, which worries me a little. Captain on the deck, I call, voice pitched high and carrying. They ignore me. Captain on the deck and carrying her dissection kit, I call, and they snap to attention. Heloise snatching a diamond out of the air as it bounces back up toward her. Tim and Tom turning to face me. Alcestes rolling out of her hammock and landing in a heap on the floor. These are the people with whom I have been instructed to preserve reality. I used to wonder why cartography captains only ever seem to want a single tour of duty. I don't wonder anymore. Now I wonder how much the professors are going to bribe me to keep my mouth shut when I get home. I better be getting tenure and a letter from the queen granting me permission to raise the dead whenever I want to where I'm going to single-handedly tank their enrollment numbers while I drink my way through every pub in New Amsterdam. Hoy, Captain, says Heloise, 
She's always been the fastest to recover. She's died twice and undergone two field resurrections, and she's still as cheerful as the day she enlisted. What's the signal? Human-occupied Manhattan, and we're bound for a flat-around building. I say, we should be docking in no more than 20 minutes. Tim and Tom give a little cheer. Even Alcestes lifts one arm in the air, waving it around in a limp, desultory manner before she goes back to trying to peel herself off the floor. My crew, so exciting. We don't know local customs, pathogens, or linguistics, so the first team will consist of the four of you. Try to avoid contact with the government or causing any breach of law enforcement to be activated. You're going to go inside, scout around, see whether we can get anything out of this parallel and give our mapping systems time to chart the city. When I call you back, you come. Got it? Yes, yes Captain. Captain. The chorus dutifully. Anything to get off this ship and down into the city and anything to make them feel useful. They want to do the jobs they were recruited for. I can't blame them for that. They have a tendency to cut a trail of chaos and confusion in their wake. I can blame them for that and do at every opportunity. But they're the team I have and replacements takes time to train, assign and arrive. Better to just work with what I have and hope they never cause a cross parallel war. Or if they do, it's a good one. We won't let you down, Captain, says Heloise, and she's wrong. I know she's wrong, but that doesn't seem important, so I just smile, nod, and wave her towards the door. The mapping systems have been running for the last hour, while the incursion teams work their way deeper and deeper into the building, occasionally sending back brief transmissions that only Daphne understands. That means that this is an English-dominant Manhattan, if we'd found another parallel where the Greeks conquered the world, they wouldn't be using Greek as their semi-encoded messaging system. Sometimes I think there must be a better way of doing this, or at least a more efficient one. Then I consider how many of our systems I can fix with a socket wrench and an electrical shock, and I remember why we do things in as primitive a matter as the job allows. The people on the ground can have their bells and whistles, we'll stay crude, and we'll stay in the air. Uh, Captain? I turn. Daphne looks concerned. The expression is foreign on her normally jovial face. A shiver of worry races down my spine and curls in my gut. If we've lost the incursion team, we won't be the first and we won't be the last. And they all knew the risks when they signed on for this trip. See the parallel worlds, experience wonders beyond imagination, and possibly get consumed by them. That's the gig. I know that, I've always known that. They wouldn't even be the first crew members I've had to leave behind, laid to rest in the soil of an unfamiliar world. But every death burns, and I don't want to go through this again, no matter how routine the risks. Report, I say. Uh, Alcestes says you need to come down to the Flatteron building? Says Daphne, slow, uncertain, confused. She says there's some questions of the trade arrangements we need, and the locals want to meet you. I blink. What? Um, she also says the locals have offered to call security if you'd rather stay in the sky, since any real captain would come down and vouch for her crew. Lightning. I close my eyes for a moment. The swear isn't big enough. I need real profanity for this. Lightning and equipment failure. The navigator makes a startled choking noise. I open my eyes. Tell her I'll be right down. 
I say and stride for the door to the release chute before anyone can argue with me or offer to take my place. To pretend to be captain while I sit safely in the sky well away from the mobs with the pitchforks and torches. They risk themselves for me. The least I can do is return the favor. The release chute is attached to the bottom of our ship, a clever construction of clear glass and metal bands forming an umbilicus tube that extends all the way to the roof of the flatteron below. Aerodynamics have never been my field, and I don't understand how it harnesses the wind to slow our fall or how it can tell the differences between a body it should drop and a body it should pull back into Stubby's comfortable embrace. It does the job it was built for, and that's enough for me. I step into the oval opening in the floor, and the wind catches me and pulls me down, like a drowning woman bound for the bottom of the sea. But I'm not drowning. There's air here all around me, and through the glass walls of the chute, I can see this new Manhattan, familiar and strange at the same time, like something out of a very unsettling dream. Then the roof of the Flatteron building is visible beneath me, and my incursion team standing around the vent structure for the building's air supply. They've been joined by several people I don't know. That's not excellent. We try to minimize interaction with people native to the various parallels, for reasons ranging from everyone has a different local flu, to we find them vaguely unsettling. There's nothing to be done for it now. I drop out of the chute onto the rooftop, straighten my jacket and step forward, hand already extended for the polite ceremonial confirmation that I'm not here to stab anyone. Captain Isabel Langford of Her Majesty's Star Trumpet of Glory, at your service, I say. My crew said you wanted to speak with me. One of the locals, a cadaverous man who looks like he's already been killed and resurrected three or four times, so maybe these people are more civilized than they seem, is practically vibrating, smiling so broadly that he's in danger of splitting his lower lip. This is really happening. This is really, really happening, he says. He turns to another of the locals, a shorter woman with graying hair and politely bemused expression. You owe me ten dollars. I never made that bet, said the woman. Excuse me, uh, Captain, but are you saying these people really come from your uh, airship up there? From another dimension? How much has the incursion team told these people? Yes, I say stiffly, lowering my hand. We come in peace. We don't intend you any harm. Those two sentences mean the same thing, usually? Says the third local, a balding man who seems short next to the living cadaver, but it's about the same height as most of the men in my crew. He has an Albanian accent. It sounds weird here in a New Amsterdam cognate. He's as out of place as we are. Is there a reason you say both? Is there a reason you needed to be talking to me? I counter. I don't leave the ship very often. That was me, said Alcestis, a twinkle in her eye that I don't care for. See, these nice folks thought that we were fans who'd broken into their offices looking for one of their authors. My confusion must now show in my expression because she grins and explains, They publish fiction, science fiction, stories about airships and parallel dimensions and people from radically divergent timelines. Oh, sweet lightning, we fell into one of those, I mutter. I focus on our trio of locals, trying to smile, trying to look like I don't want to push them all off the building and have done with it. We can't take you with us. Living samples are a violation of protocol. I won't tell them that we sometimes recruit new crew members from unexplored parallels. I don't want the headache, and we don't have any openings right now anyway. We already clarified that with Al here? 
says the cadaver, indicating Alcestes. We were just hoping you'd sit down for coffee, let us take some notes while your people explore the city. We're even willing to tell authorities that your ship is promotional stunt that we're doing. Keep the looky-loogs away. We'll buy lunch, says the woman, for your whole crew. All right, I say slowly. Do you have green people on this parallel? No, says the Albanian man. Why, do you? Slowly, I smile. Alcestes winks at me. This is going to be fun. We set sail for the nearest dimensional instability, a map of our assigned territory safely stored in the ship's system and several cases of the local literature in our hold. Along with everything else, the incursion team was able to liberate during their tour of the city. We're almost ready to go home. Captain, asks Daphne. She's wearing a t-shirt from the book people. It's not officially approved, but she looks good, and I like to let my 2019 crew express themselves. Sail for the tear. I say, we have work to do. And on we go, chasing the horizon, steam and chrome and lightning, drifting onward, ever onward, any way the wind blows. I'm going to continue on with chapter three of Emily Prickleback's clever idea. Uh, And chapter three is called Unwelcome Visitors. Jess and Lily watched the hedgehogs waddle over to the water wheel. Inside it were five smaller wheels. Each of the Pricklebacks climbed into one. Ready team? asked Mr. Prickleback. Ready, they cried. Then one. And two. And ready, steady, curl! The five hedgehogs immediately curled up into spiky balls. They rolled forwards, each making their own wheel turn. The five little wheels each turned a cog which clicked and clanked then fitted together to turn the water wheel. Suddenly, the water started to rush through it much faster than before. Wow, said Lily as the hedgehogs rolled so quickly they became prickly blurs. No wonder only the pricklebacks can make the water wheel work. But as the girls watched the water wheel in the light, Goldie gave a cry. Oh no! Girls, look, she shouted. A familiar orb of yellow-green light was drifting through the trees, right towards them. It's Griselda, Jess called to the hedgehogs. Emily stopped rolling and uncurled. Her little paws flew to her mouth. The witch, she squealed. All of the pricklebacks stopped rolling. They dumped down from the water wheel and huddled together, their spikes quivering with worry. The orb burst into a shower of spitting yellow-green sparks. In its place stood a tall, bony woman with green hair swirling around her face like a bunch of snakes. She folded her arms and tapped the sharply pointed toe of one of her high-heeled boots. Curl, Mr. Prickleback shouted. In a flash, all the hedgehogs rolled themselves into round prickly balls. Your spiky little friends are right to be afraid, Griselda sneered. My next dragon is going to make all the animals leave this forest. Then it will be mine forever. <laughs> Jess glanced at Lily. Her friend's eyes were wide, but she could tell Lily was determined not to let this witch see that she was scared. We're ready for anything your dragon does, Jess said bravely. We'll see about that, screeched Griselda. Then, with a snap of her fingers, she disappeared. Goldie slipped her paws into Jess and Lily's hands. What do you think this dragon will do, she asked. They stood, backed together, watching and waiting. But the forest looked just as lovely as before. The pricklebacks had just started to uncurl when they heard a mighty roar from above. Circling in the air was Dusty, Griselda's yellow dragon. The pricklebacks seemed to be too frightened to move as the dragon gave a grasping giggle. 
<laughs> I'm going to make it lovely and dry, she said. Friendship Forest will be like a desert. Jess was horrified. You can't do that, she yelled. What about the animals? <laughs> Who cares about them, said Dusty. My yellow scales will look so pretty in the sun. Suddenly she swooped lower. Oh no, cried Jess. She's heading for the pricklebacks. Run, shouted Lily. Hide, yelled Goldie and Jess together. But the pricklebacks didn't move. They shook with fright, their spikes quivering. Dusty flew towards them. She gave another sandy roar and chanted. Magic makes these hedgehogs change so they all turn to stone. Then the river will flow no more but be as dry as bone. Lily, Jess and Goldie watched in horror as the hedgehog's brown prickles turned grey. Lastly, their trembling paws turned grey and were still. Jess ran to pick Harry up. His spikes were cold and as hard and he didn't feel like a real hedgehog at all. She clutched him to her and turned to Lily and Goldie. Her face was pale. Oh no, she gasped. The poor pricklebacks. Griselda's dragon has turned them to stone. So that's it uh, for another episode, everyone. Hope you enjoyed listening and uh, thank you again for tuning in for another special storytime edition of the Department Podcast. Remember, you can send us an email at departmentpodcast.ca. Connect with us on Twitter at departmentpod. Or just email us through our own emails as well. So until next time, uh, stay safe, everyone. We'll bring you more stories next time around. So send in those recommendations and requests. And uh, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.